In Mark 14, 27 through 52, God speaks to us in his word. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began <clears throat> to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And, then he, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Everybody doing good? Everybody been out working in their yard too early? Putting stuff down, I don't know, mowing, springtime. It tells you where my mind's at. I, apparently, I'm the only one that thinks about the yard this time of year. Um, hey, it's good to see you guys. My name is Ben. If I haven't met you, I get to serve as a lead pastor here and one of the elders. Um, a couple things I want to tell you about um, before we jump into the sermon. Um, one is, if you're not familiar with Frontline Church, we really do have multiple congregations you might call them campuses, we call them congregations. There's five, one in Edmond, uh, one in Yukon, one in Moore, Oklahoma, 
and then downtown Oklahoma City. So when you hear us say downtown, we're talking about downtown Oklahoma City for Good Friday. And then there's Frontline Shawnee. And Frontline Shawnee is actually the oldest church plant congregation of Frontline. We've been here about 12 years now. And the reason I'm telling you that is because we as a church, we have different lead pastors, different contexts, different elders. So we really do minister to this context. It's not like church in a box. It's, uh, it's very much... Um, very much sort of tailored to each context that we're in, but we share resources, and we kind of gather around each other, and we have central staff that really help do, uh, sort of develop uh, people from every other congregation. And one of the things that I think we, that is amazing that we do, I think one of the things that we do best is we have an internship and residency program in our church. And now the goal of that program is to train people theologically, doctrinally, but not just that, because that's actually not enough. We want people to be strengthened in their inner man, like Paul says. And so we train with heart, self-awareness. Uh, we walk through a lot of stuff. We've got five interns in Shawnee alone going through the internship program, and we're gonna have two or three residents next year. So the reason I'm bringing that up to you today is because our internship director over all of our congregations is here. His name is Stephen. He's right in the back. Everybody turn and say, hi, Stephen. Nice dude. Looking sharp today, Stephen. Appreciate you driving out. Um, he's here today to answer any questions that you might have about our internship program. Okay, it's part-time. It's eight months. Um, there is, we ask you to raise support, however much you, you think you need, but we'll train you. We'll put you in ministry service within one of our congregations. Uh, for those of you in the room, it would be in Shawnee. So after the service is over... Go and visit Stephen. Even if you don't want to do it this year, go visit him. He'll be able to tell you all about our internship and residency program. Sound good? Good Lord. Stephen likes it. All right, good. Um, and of course, you can ask me any question anytime you want, any, any of our staff about it. All right, we're in the book of Mark, Mark 14. Go ahead, and if you haven't already, you can open there in your Bibles. This book is alive. It has a heartbeat. It has brain activity. It is a living word of God. So we're about to approach this alive book, and we're not gonna, we're not gonna view it through the lens of things that happened a long time ago. They did. But we're gonna view it through the lens of things that we need to hear today from what's something that happened a long time ago. We've been walking through this entire book, Mark, and it's been several weeks now, and it's taken us a while. It's only 16 chapters, but preaching through an entire gospel takes a little bit. We've seen Jesus do crazy things. This, the book of Mark is a gospel. It's one of four gospels, and the reason it's called gospel is because it, it chronicles the good news and the truth about Jesus um, coming and living among us a perfect life dying and then being resurrected on our behalf. Mark has been walking us through Jesus' life. He's healed people. He's calmed a storm. He's shown incredible power. He's shown even more compassion and grace. Jesus has given us a whole world of things that would make us trust the fact that he is, in fact, God. But he's God and man. At the same time, he's not just God coming to pose as a man. There's a difference. He is fully man. He is a human being. Jesus is. He has a heartbeat. 
He has brain activity. He has blood flowing, flowing through his veins. But he's also God. It's important, though, that we know today that Jesus, as fully man, who experienced a full range of emotions, who could feel pain in every way, actually felt pain in every way. And this story in the garden is on the eve of, it is literally the night that he is going to be betrayed. He's betrayed in this text. He's about to go to the cross as a man who bleeds, who has never once felt the sting of sin in his life. He's never sinned. And he's actually, Jesus has existed through eternity in perfect communion with God the Father and Spirit. Now as a man is about to face the most devastating, grueling, straight up, for lack of a better term, the nastiest thing that has ever happened to a person in the history of humanity. Jesus is about to face it. Here he is going to the Garden of Gethsemane. On that night, he knows what's coming. He knows it. He feels it. He can taste it. He can smell it. There is a cup that he has to drink. It's not just about his injuries that he's going to sustain. It's not just about physical pain. It's this cup of sin. It's this cup of wrath that he knows he's about to drink. And three different times he returns, not just short prayers, over a long period of time. And for the first time, he tells the Father, I will do what you want me to do, but will you please make a way for me to not do this thing? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. However, if you want it to happen, let it be. That's what Jesus is saying. One of the Gospels reports that he was so stressed and anxious that he actually prayed this crazy medical phenomenon. He pray, he, as he was praying, he was sweating. Well, first off, I don't know how many of you guys sweat when you pray, but that's intense anyway. But it was so intense that actually blood had entered into um, his glands. And he was praying, sweating drops of blood as he was praying. That is intense anxiety. My fear with our church and my fear with this part of the world is this, is that we will become so familiar with the story of Jesus and the story of the cross that we won't actually ever be able to see it for what it is. We easily can become the overchurched, under-gospeled crowd. We've heard the story. The cross becomes cute to us. It's something we wear around our neck. It's on coffee mugs or whatever. The Bible itself is just another book. What Jesus did in the garden, what he did on the cross is like, it's just another story. We ask people, are you a Christian? They would say, yeah, in general, like, well, yeah, I'm American, right? as opposed to ever fully coming to a realization of the sheer horror, the intensity and anxiety of pain and suffering that's not just the cat of nine tails or the Roman torture device, the cross, but what he drank for us, the cup that he took, the cup of sin and wrath. The most innocent man to ever live literally never sinned took the worst punishment of all time. Do you understand what's happening? That phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, it's like, for us, 
That's my fear for myself. I'm preaching to myself. That's my fear for us is that we'll get to a place where it's just a story to us. We're Christian. We're, that's what we do. Today, we need to sit down. We need to sit down, absorb, and receive the reality of what Jesus has done for you. It's mind-blowing. It's beyond just a church story. It's intense in every way. He goes off to pray. He's just been at the Mount of Olives. We've been in Mark 13 and just entered into 14. The Olivet Discourse, the sermon that he gives on the Mount of Olives. Now he's off to the side of the Mount of Olives in a garden on the side owned by a wealthy man. The garden's called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane literally translates to oil press. God is about to be pressed. Jesus is about to be pressed. He takes three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, and he asks them a simple thing. Just don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. He goes off to pray, and he prays this prayer. First thing is this. He says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now think about those words. When the Bible describes something, every word matters. To be distressed and, and troubled at the same time, is that is intense. But to be greatly distressed and troubled, imagine what is happening in Jesus. Imagine if you yourself went with a friend and you described like, my friend is greatly distressed and troubled. This is true sorrow. And Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. What measure of sorrow does it take to kill a man? Sorrow is an emotion. What measure of sorrow does it take for someone to even wish that they were dead? What kind of stress must be set on a person for them to be sorrowful even to death? It wasn't just a five-minute prayer like we said. It was long. It took the night. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And here's the words of Jesus. This is what he said, Abba, Father, which Abba is, it's an intimate, it's not disrespectful. We use Abba like it's disrespect sometimes. Like, like we shouldn't fear God the Father. We should have a healthy fear of God. But how Jesus prays it with respect and intimacy at the same time. He says Abba, which basically means dad. This is a different kind of prayer. This is, Dad, Father, you can do anything. There's nothing you can't do. You could change how this is all supposed to go down. You could call down angels. You could literally do anything. All things are possible for you. The next is, is not, he's not asking a question. He's, this is a plea. Remove this cup. Dad, you can do anything. Let me just remind you what you can do. You can do anything. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came, and he found his friends sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. This is again, this is the second time he said, you can do anything. God, Father, you can do anything. Please take this cup from me. But not what I will, what you will. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time. This is three different times now. He's gone and prayed the same prayer. Take it from me, please, but whatever you want to do. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. What pain, what anxiety, and what obedience. In the middle of pain and suffering, in the middle of the most anguish any human has ever felt, the most stress any human has ever felt in the history of the world, Jesus does what none of us could do, what Adam could not do. He stays faithful to God's will. We're too familiar with this story. We need to absorb it. We need to absorb the cup that Jesus was about to bear, the cup that he asked the Father to take away. Why did he want it gone? What was the reasoning for his plea? What is the cup? What cup? Is this just a random cup? I mean, what cup are you talking about, Jesus? What are you going to have to drink that is causing you so much pain? What was about to happen on the cross was this, simply this. Jesus was about to take the things that we deserve and in turn give us the thing that only he deserves. On the cross, Jesus takes punishment, yes. We think of punishment on the cross, we think it was. It was a Roman torture device. It was brutal. It was brutal. It was a cross hung before everyone, um, stripped naked on the cross, abuse, betrayal by his friends, all of those things. But the thing that was causing Jesus the most anguish, the thing that we deserved, that he took, was God the Father's wrath against sin. See, here's the thing with God. We love to think about God as love, but it's always our version of love. It's not real love. It's just our love, which equals you agree with me all the time. You tolerate anything I want to do all the time. That's real love. You just say yes to me, pass, oh, whatever. God's love is a different kind of love. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God is love. So he loves us. It even talks about those he disciplines, he loves. That's a sign of God's love. Now, how about that in 2022? A sign of God's love is his discipline for his kids. It's actually one of the ways that you can know that you belong to God as his children is, is he disciplining me? Has he disciplined me? Am I learning? Am I growing? God's love is a different kind of love. But there's also this other thing, this other part of God that is God's justice. He's not just love, he's also justice. And we need God to be justice. He would cease to be God if he wasn't just. He's love and justice. Both those things exist in the same breath with God. So in his justice and his love, his judgment has to go somewhere. You understand? It wouldn't be just at all if he just forgot about transgressions or he just 
forgot about sin or he just forgot about those things. His justice has to go somewhere. It's what the Bible calls his wrath. His wrath has to be poured out on sin. There's no way it couldn't be. That's why you and I don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance. Even one sin, just one, your whole lifetime. I don't know how old you are. I just turned 41, 41. I know I've sinned at least once. I mean, if we're self-aware at all, we just know like, man, I, I struggle. My thoughts, my selfishness, the things I, you know, whatever. Take advantage of people, whatever it is. We struggle, man. We sin. We are sinners. That's what we are. What are we going to do? With, what are you going to do with all of that? A lifetime worth. What are you going to do with it? It's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just vaporize and forget about it. God is just, you understand? He's love, but he's justice. He has to pour out his wrath on sin. The cup that Jesus is about to drink is the cup of your sin. He's never known it. He never experienced sin at all. He was forever perfect, never made. Nobody ever created Jesus. He is eternal. He chose to come and be born a man. He had already existed before he came to be born a man. You understand? He's never known sin. The cup that he's about to drink is a cup of sin that he does not deserve. And then it's also the cup of God's justice. So two things that we deserve that Jesus has taken on. Let this cup pass from me, Jesus said. It's the most vulnerable he's ever been. Two cups Jesus takes. First, the cup of sin. All the crazy things humanity's ever done, not that you need convincing of this, murdering, adultery, lies, manipulation, rape, our shame, betrayal. Betrayal. So real in the moment. Jesus told them they would all betray him in verse 27. You will all fall away. It's not just exclusive to Judas, who, by the way, Judas was the one that betrayed him with a kiss. The Bible describes him as one of the 12. This guy was still considered to be a disciple of Jesus, which is a whole other thing. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, then the good news is, is that it wasn't like the rest of them got it right. You don't get it right either. Even in our betrayal, Jesus includes us. It's not exclusive to Peter, who Peter was crazy, man. Imagine this. So you're with your friends. I don't know. You know, you got a group of people. Maybe some of y'all here at church today, family. You got your boys. You know, you got your bros or whatever it is. Um, sorry, I'm a dude. Girls, you know, you got your friends too. I just don't know what you call each other. <laughs> and it's your, it's your group, man. You've already been like, ride or die. You're my boy. Nobody could ever say anything. We, we've been sleeping on the ground together. It's been three years of doing ministry together, man. We've seen Jesus do some crazy stuff. We done just about got killed a few times. We are. Peter, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Peter says, everybody here would, but I won't. Right under the bus. Sells them straight out. All of his bros says, they all will. I won't betray you. And Jesus says, you will. Three times tonight. Verbally, you will betray me. 
He also falls asleep three times, which is another betrayal. Peter does. Even though they will all fall away, I will not. But it includes every single one of them, not just Peter, not just Judas. In verse 50, they all left him and fled. It's what makes what Jesus do when he takes that cup of sin. He takes the cup of betrayal. Our betrayal against him, against each other. Jesus was always faithful. It's one of the attributes of God is that he is always eternally faithful, even when we betray. Jesus had never sinned. He'd never been stained by sin. 2 Corinthians 5 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Talking about Jesus. I love this because it doesn't say for our sake he made him to know sin who knew no sin. It says he had to become it. That thing, that anger and jealousy and betrayal and sin and shame, he became that. Jesus is in anguish. Let this cup pass from me because he knows he's about to drink the cup of our sin. He also takes the cup of wrath or the cup of God's judgment. This lets us know something, that our sin is not flippant. It's not cute. We tend to think of our pet things or whatever, and I'm preaching myself as the things that like give us life in some ways. Sin is just not cute. It's not. God is infinitely holy, burns brighter than the sun, can't even look upon him. I think about Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. You never in your life met anybody more holy than Isaiah. He was incredibly holy. God used him to really move his people forward. Isaiah, this pretty holy man who stood out as holy, gets a glimpse of God's glory, and here's how Isaiah responds. He says, I can't even look on him. I cannot speak. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. That's Isaiah's response, just in God's presence. He's holy. God is both love and justice. All sin has to go somewhere, and the wrath of God is the cup that Jesus drank. It's poured out on him every single drop. Think about this. Every single ounce of God's wrath if you are a Christian today, every ounce of God's justice against sin was poured out on his son. There's none left for you. Jesus endures the full measure of the justice of the Father on our behalf. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What's about to happen on the cross is unbearable and unthinkable. The most innocent man in all of history was about to receive the most gruesome punishment in all of history. What Jesus got on the cross, we deserve. And in his resurrection, he gives us what only he deserves, eternal life and sonship. Jesus gives us something, takes our punishment, and then gives us something in return. He drinks the cup intended for us and gives us a new cup of covenant. 
Jesus took our cup of sin and he gives us a cup of righteousness. He took our cup of wrath and gave us his cup of restoration. Jesus took our cup of betrayal and he gives us his cup of forgiveness. I love the story of Peter. He denied him three times. He, you know, three times he fell asleep, which that's betrayal. He also denied him three times. One time around Roman soldiers and odes and curses, you know. Peter, the chameleon, is now all of a sudden has to cuss when denying Jesus around these Roman soldiers. And then he runs off, and Peter at that point is counted as outside of the, tw- of the 12. He's counted as not a disciple. Let's say the disciples and Peter. He had denied Jesus. He denied the whole thing. Jesus did not do what he thought he should do, which was overthrow the Roman government and set them up as a military power. At this point, Peter, he's out. He denied Jesus, and it didn't take long. I mean, this is the same night. It didn't take long for him to do it. I love the story of Peter because the story of Peter is the story of me and the story of you. What happens with Peter is Jesus doesn't do to Peter what I would do, which would be like, okay, see you later, dude. I don't know what to tell you. I told you it was going to happen. It happened. You left. Jesus did what God does. In the end of John, after his resurrection, Peter's gone. Jesus goes to Peter. He's fishing. Resurrected Jesus. He he comes up on the beach. He cooks breakfast for him. Now just think about, in human terms, like not, this is not just a random, it takes time to cook breakfast. This man has betrayed you. Imagine what Peter felt in that moment. He cooks breakfast for him. He sits with him. He restores him. He pursued Peter, the betrayer. Jesus pursued him, shared a meal with him. He asked Peter three different times, do you love me? I just want to make sure, do you love me? Sweet, tender, God Almighty resurrected Jesus in his compassion and grace. He says, do you love me? Peter did not, he fell asleep three times, he denied Jesus three times, and then three times on the beach, he asked him the question, do you love me? Peter says, yeah. Yeah, I love you. And then God tells him something Jesus does on the beach. He says, upon, Peter confesses Jesus, he said, upon this rock I will build my church. What is the rock? What is it? Is it just Peter's words? No, it's Peter's confession maybe, but it's the gospel. The rock is the gospel. And what is that? Upon this rock, you betray, I count it on myself. The gospel. The gospel is this. Come, all betrayers. Come, all deceivers. Come, all of those who run away from God. Come, bring all of your stuff. Bring every bit of it. The gospel is Jesus will fully accept you exactly like you are, betrayer and all. That's the rock. That's the gospel. Last thing I've got today. You might have been wondering as we read there, it's like, what is the deal with this random dude that's following Jesus in the last year and he loses his clothes? Why do we, who is this? Why do we need to know about this random, this two verses of like this random guy? A lot of scholars think it was actually John Mark that wrote the book of Mark, but He's following Jesus. He's fully clothed. He gets captured. Um, as he's running away, they capture him, and he's so dead set on betraying Jesus and running away from him, he just sheds his, he says, you could take my clothes, and he's gone. 
So now here's this naked dude running in the middle of the night away from following Jesus. That sounds like betrayal. Talk about denial. He didn't even care that he was naked. What is the deal with this story? Well, here's the deal. In the garden, in Genesis 3, in the garden of Eden where all of this started, where the fall happened, what happens with the serpent there? The serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and he says to them, you can be as God, and they bought it. They bit the apple, and they bought the lie, and the first thing that happened was immediately this. They knew that they were naked, and then they were ashamed. It's the first time that shame entered into the world. It was actually invented in that moment, and God came to them, and he said to them this, who told you you were naked? Shame entered in. Confusion entered in. Nakedness, vulnerability, sin entered in. Them looking upon themselves as totally unclothed now. There's no covering for them. Their covering was their right relationship with God. It's interesting that this young man, as long as he was following Jesus, he had clothes on. As soon as he flees from Jesus, he becomes naked again. Jesus is actually described in the Bible as the new Adam and the better Adam. The Bible says that through one man, all died. Through Adam's sin, all died. Shame, nakedness entered in. We all are unclothed without God. Through one man, all died. Through one man, all will live. Jesus becomes the new Adam. And here's the best part about this whole story. He puts on his clothes on us. So we're no longer naked. We're no longer ashamed. We're no longer exposed as sinful, broken, shamed, guilty people. Now we take the resurrected clothes of Jesus and they're put on us. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness that his son gave. Clothed in righteousness, washed white and clean. Today, you might have heard the gospel a hundred times. I don't know. But this is the gospel. Without Jesus, quite simply this, you are exposed. You are. Without Jesus, there's nowhere for your sin to go other than the wrath of God be poured out on it. But with Jesus, you get all the covenant and the benefits of the covenant. Everything that Jesus only deserved, you get because of his work. Do you understand what I'm saying? He takes the cup of sin, takes the cup of wrath, and he gives us in return a cup of righteousness, a cup of sonship, a cup of daughterhood, a cup of eternal, everlasting life. So come with all of your bad decisions. Come with all of your bad attitudes. Come with all of your lies and deceit. Come with every bit of brokenness that you have. Come with all of your betrayal. You come, you're in good company. You can come with all of that. What we need and what is offered to you today is Jesus giving his obedience, his life, the cup of righteousness in exchange for all of that. We're about to take communion. We take communion every single week here because we need it. We need the reminder of what Jesus has done. He, right before this scene in, in Gethsemane, he had, he had had supper with his friends, with the disciples, the one who was gonna betray him. And even knowing that they were gonna betray him, Jesus said, here's my body, here's my blood, broken for you and poured out for you, betrayer. 
become just like you are today. What he offers is life, life in return. Let's stand together.